this is Father John Arnold, and this is Oral Valley Catholic, Psalm 23. He guides me along right paths for the sake of his name, and even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. Psalm 23 is probably everybody's favorite psalm, and it's about the valley of the shadow of death, and that's the Gehenna Valley. That's the Gehenna that Jesus refers to in the story today as he talks about Gehenna, where the fire doesn't stop and the worm gnaws on you forever. And how do you get there? It's because you ignore the little ones. That's the second part, the mikros, uh, that, that are a special place in God's heart. The, the Greek word mikros is where we get the word micro from. And so, yes, it includes children. That's a good translation. But not just children. It's just anybody that uh, doesn't count. And remember, St. John is complaining to start the readings from today. And there's a link here in the show notes or the podcast notes. And it's from Numbers chapter 11, where uh, based on advice from his father-in-law, Moses appoints 70 elders. And then it turns out that these other two guys, Eldad and Medad, are out prophesying, and they're not part of the 70. And so when someone complains to them, Moses said, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the people of the Lord were prophets? Would that the Lord might bestow his spirit on them all? Consistent with, the, with Vatican II, that God operates within the church, but the church does not limit how God operates, does not limit the Holy Spirit. Nobody has God in their back pocket. Not Christians, Jew, Muslim, Buddhist. Nobody has God in their back pocket. And so today we're going to talk about the Canaan Valley. We're going to talk about um, the nature of sin and the hell that Jesus talks about, which is rooted in the abuse of power. It's about fear to control ourselves. It's about violence against others. And it's also about fraud. This is how the medievals would look at it. And I'm going to explain it more, uh, more fully uh, in, uh, in part of this podcast, if you stay with me, about how Dante saw hell. And so the Gehenna Valley um, is the place where this story centers. And we're going to turn and we're going to talk about what the Gehenna Valley is and why Jesus used it as a metaphor for hell. It's a place where hope doesn't exist. Children are sacrificed, and filth and defilement uh, have their day. Sounds like hell, doesn't it? This is Oro Valley Catholic. There is a, a really a fine modern Jewish writer named Edwin Black, and he's most famous for uh, his uh, essays, his exposés, on the role that the Western powers played in the rise of Adolf Hitler, Nazism, and the slaughter of the Jews in the uh, 1940s. Especially IBM is criticized because they provided some of the early ways of organizing the names and addresses of Jews before the persecution started so that the Nazis knew to go where to find them. And IBM got its um, start with punch cards, and they actually provided the technology to help uh, uh, kind of catalog the Jews. Well, Black, who is uh, Mr. Black, Edwin Black, uh, wrote a really interesting essay back in the, uh, like 2009 about the Gehenna Valley. And he says the interesting thing about it is that it, at its top where it starts in this very shallow 
grassy place with trees. He says it's the fashionable end of Jerusalem. That's a place where upscale shops are and, and more high, high-end homes are. And that there's a slight, slight decline down into the valley. And by the time you get down into the valley, it is just like this trash dump. And what makes it really difficult in parts is it's kind of like no man's land in the, the Arab-Jewish conflict surrounding uh, Jerusalem. Uh, the reason Jesus refers to that valley is that in the Old Testament, it was the valley where human sacrifice took place. You know, when we think of the uh, people following Moses coming into Jerusalem, uh, as it's set out in the, in the, in the book of uh, Joshua, is we think there's this clean cut where there's these Canaanites doing horrible things, but now Israel's in place. And that is kind of the story of the book of Joshua. But the same period of time is covered in the book of Judges, and it portrays a very different Israel, a place where uh, there's great devotion to, to Yahweh, and then it declines and the people fall into foul practices. And then, again, great devotion. Uh, God raises up a judge uh, that frees the people from the oppression of the Edomites, the Moabites, and then once the dangers pass, people fall back into these old Canaanite ways. So it's this more um, complex view of what ancient Israel was like between the Yahwehs and the people who still worshipped um, the old uh, Canaanite gods. Jeremiah is complaining about it, and this would be in the Uh, 7th century and the 6th century, Jeremiah chapter 19, verses 4 to 6, he talks about, he goes to Topeth, which is a place in the Gehenna Valley where uh, children are sacrificed. Child sacrifice has always been part of culture, especially Western culture. It's referred to in the whole cycle of stories around the Trojan War. Agamemnon sacrificed his daughter, Iphigenia, to get a favorable wind so he and the Greeks, can, a thousand ships strong, can sail to Troy to destroy it. The Romans complained about it amongst the Carthaginians, who were a Phoenician culture in the First and Second Punic War, and apparently that the Carthaginians practiced uh, child sacrifice uh, during the time of the Carthaginian War, uh, the Punic Wars, First and Second Wars, which is like second and third century BC. But even in uh, Alexander the Great's siege of Tyre, which is in modern Lebanon, which is apparently this, uh, this uh, fortress on an island connected to the mainland by a causeway, that uh, at the, the height of the battle, the king of Tyre sacrificed his eldest son to Moloch, um, because this is a Canaanite practice, uh, sacrificing children, because if you give your firstborn the thing that's most important to you, the God will see and respond. When they talk about Moloch, uh, modern scholars still uh, are unsure whether Moloch is the God that was worshipped or Moloch was the kind of sacrifice, a human sacrifice that was required. I said that there was human sacrifice clearly in the Old Testament, and I talked about the book of Judges. There's a judge there named Jephthah, who he's a minor judge, but uh, he promises God that if God gives him victory in battle, he'll sacrifice the first uh, thing he comes across when he returns home. When he returns home, who does he see? His own daughter dancing out. 
to welcome him. So clearly there's human sacrifice in the background of ancient Israel. Here's what Jeremiah had to say in chapter 19. All because they have forsaken me and profaned this place by burning incense to other gods, which neither they nor their ancestors knew, and because the kings of Judah have filled this place with innocent blood, building high places for Baal to burn their children in fire as offerings to Baal, something I never considered or said or commanded. Therefore, days are coming, oracle of the Lord, when this place, the Gana Valley, will no longer be called Tophath, which is the ancient name, or the Valley of Ben-Himmon, but rather the Valley of Slaughter, the Valley of the Shadow of Death. And again in 2 Kings, Josiah was a great reforming king before Israel was uh, conquered by the Babylonians. In 2 Kings chapter 23, which is towards the end of the stories of the king of kings of, uh, of Judah, the king also defiled Topheth in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, so that there would no longer be any immolation of sons or daughters by fire in honor of Moloch. The Romans uh, described it as they would place the infant in the hands of this stone idol, and then, as scripture says, it would be passed through fire, immolated alive. Um, there is some indication that the Jewish people would actually adopt a child uh, in order to make the sacrifice of an adopted child. But you know, it's hard to make sense of the ancient world. But for the Romans, the Greeks, the, the people of Israel, the Phoenicians, clearly child sacrifice was part of ancient ritual. And around Jerusalem, it was associated with the Gehenna Valley. And so in later understanding by Jesus' day, it was the place of idol worship. It was the place of filth. The Pharisees, the Essenes, would take their dung outside the city walls because you did not want to defile the city with your, with your excrement. And they would dump it in the, the Gehenna Valley. In fact, uh, in Orthodox tradition, that uh, when Judas uh, threw his... Um, his 30 pieces of silver into the uh, back to the chief priest. It was used to buy this piece of land that's above the Canaan Valley, which there is now a monastery on that goes back to the fourth century. But they built a monastery that kind of, of if it's actually Orthodox nuns, um, that uh, tries to make sacred this place where this great betrayal took place. So think about that, Gehenna. Uh, if you're sacrificing children, you are in despair. You're in a hopeless place. Because when you sacrifice your children, even when we sacrifice them in modern terms, in abortion, in America, it's sacrifice because you can't believe good things can happen to you now if you hold on and take care of your children. That's what hopelessness is. That's despair. There is no future. And that's what the Gehenna Valley is. So... When we think about this in our Western tradition, the great meditation on the Ganem Valley and hell uh, that Jesus talks about is uh, Dante's Inferno. And did you know that this is the 700 year uh, for Dante and his poem, which was written in the early part of the 14th century, um, completed, I think, around 1321. That would be 700 years ago. And so let's turn for uh, a brief discussion of the Inferno. And what this has to offer about the nature of Gehenna, the oppression of little ones, and um, while Jesus is talking to us about what hell looks like 
even if we should choose to participate in it here in this life. So let's turn now to Dante's Inferno. Imagine that you would tell your friends that you're reading Dante's Inferno this year and his Purgatorio and his Paradiso and get some help doing it. There's, I, I'll, I'll make a link to some of the, the aids that you can get in understanding Dante. It's just a meditation this year, one of the most profound meditations we have on the pathway to God, but it starts in darkness. And that is how Dante begins his poem, which he wrote 700 years ago. And it begins this way in Canto One. Midway along the journey of our life, I woke to find myself in a dark wood, for I had wandered off from the straight path. How hard it is to tell what it was like, this wood of wilderness, savage and stubborn. The thought of it brings back all my old fears, a bitter place. Death could scarce be bitterer. But if I would show the good that came of it, I must talk about things other than the good. How I entered there, I cannot truly say. I'd become so sleepy at the moment when I first strayed, leaving the path of truth. Dante is in middle age, and he finds himself in a dark wood. There he's going to meet Virgil, and his journey begins. Virgil is the great Latin poet that wrote the Aeneid. And so Virgil will become his guide through the Inferno and most of the Purgatory, most of Purgatory. And at first, Dante's reluctant to take the path. But he wants to climb this mountain that goes to a better place. But his pathway is blocked by these savage beasts, a lion, a, a she-wolf, uh, and a leopard. And scholars think that it represents the three kinds of sin that you find categorically in the inferno, that unless you can get by those beasts, walk by the dragon, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so the journey begins when he meets Virgil in this dark wood, and Virgil takes him into the inferno. We think of the inferno as a fire, but infernus means basically the underworld, because the antecedents to this poem are um, all these ancient poems where, like, uh, Odysseus in the Odyssey goes into the underworld, and Nid makes a visit into the underworld. And so Dante, during the Renaissance, is relying on these older Greco-Roman poems as he reimagines them in this uh, Christian way. So they walk through the gates of hell. And the gates of hell say, Abandon hope, all ye who have entered here. These gates have been erected by divine justice. And this is the key thing to understand understanding hell. Hell is a place where there is only justice. There is no mercy. The first people he encounters um, are basically at a garden party. It's people like um, uh, where Virgil is, Aristotle and Plato, Cicero, these great figures from the ancient world, that they were people of virtue, the acquired virtues of justice and temperance and prudence and courage, but they lacked the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, which are the gift of baptism. And it's these theological virtues that give us uh, the grace of faith, hope, and love, the only things that are capable of taking us beyond uh, reason alone. And so uh, he gets a, a chance to stop and talk to some of his famous, of these famous old philosophers, and then he moves on. And so here's a way, just in a general way, to understand 
how Dante sees hell, because we don't have a lot of time to go through everything, but he sees hell is lower hell and upper hell. That in this infernus, this descent into the underworld, into the center of our world, um, starts in like the vestibule, limbo, which is not unpleasant. It's like a, 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 a an Edenic uh, uh, existence. Um, it's just that you don't know God. That's really the only punishment involved. Um, you don't come to the fulfillment of what it means to be a human being. But upper hell has two basic sins that characterize it. One is incontinence, and that's the uh, failure to be able to control yourself. So that's where the lustful are, the gluttonous, the hoarders and the wasters, the wrathful and the slothful. Now, if you read the Inferno and you uh, the comedy, the divine comedy, the Inferno, the Purgatorio, and the Paradiso, about the underworld, purgatory, and then eternal life, is what you find is the entry level to hell is incontinence. But in the purgatory, the seven-story mountains, because there's seven deadly sins, this is where Thomas Merton's um, title for his famous book comes from, The Seven-Story Mountain. It's the upper levels of purgatory closest uh, to the paradise, which is where the incontinent are, because it's a sin of passion. Um, it has overwhelmed will. It has overwhelmed intellect. But uh, the passions are being purgated closer because they're not as completely corrupting, although it's mortal sin, you're in hell, so it's pretty corrupting. Um, but in purgatory, these are the things that you deal with as you're getting ready to enter into the king, into the, into the new life. But incontinence is only one of three parts of, of hell. The second is the violent. And so it's violence against neighbors, violence against self, violence against God. But this is the upper part of hell because this is, um, is as Dante looks at it, he, he looks at it as that um, the great moral virtues are justice, but, and remember, hell is about justice, so is the entire comedy. But the three key infused virtues are moderation, courage, and wisdom. And so the three levels of hell, incontinence, violence, and fraud are basically the mirror image of, of, the, of the acquired virtues. So moderation, um, how, learning how to control yourself, temperance, is mirrored in incontinence, where you can't control yourself. Uh, courage, which is the mean between cowardice or uh, vainglory, throwing your life away in two different ways, violence against self, violence against others. Um, then incontinent uh, violence is, um, can, be, can be sinful, uh, can be part of grave sin. And then wisdom, which is the deepest, lower part of hell where Satan is at, um, it's the, the contrary to it is fraud. And so here's just a couple of stories about uh, how it is that Dante sees sin darkening the intellect, the will, and the passions. So the first level of hell, what I would call is hell without the asterisk, where real punishment's taking a place, is for the lustful. And there Dante encounters Francesca and Paolo. And the thing about Francesco and Paolo is Francesca's married, Paolo is her lover, but 
Francesca's husband is Paolo's brother, and he apparently catches them in flagrante delicto, as it were, and finishes them away with a... Um, with a sword. And so they're in this unending storm where they're constantly being blown around and they're stuck together. Dante gets to talk to uh, Francesca about how she fell into this sin. What she says is that they were reading uh, the story of Lancelot and Guinevere. They looked at each other. There was no more reading this day. You can use your imagination as to what they were doing when the husband killed them. But that the idea of the lustful, what damns them, is they can't see it as sin. They don't see the sin in Francesco and Paolo. Paolo never says anything because he's just moaning next to Francesco, whether that's suffering or passion, use your, uh, use your imagination. But Francesca clearly doesn't see that she did anything wrong. It was that darn book. That's what she blames it on. And so the, con, the consistency through all of hell is that sinners are always blaming it on somebody else because the consistency is self-centeredness. There is no place for justice. There is no place where they can hear God's voice. And so that's where Francesca is. Let's go to the other end of the spectrum, uh, lower hell, um, the lower uh, city of hell. Um, it's interesting that Dante puts Boniface VIII, who is the pope at the time Dante's, Dante's writing this, a notoriously corrupt pope who told all the kings of Europe that they had to kiss his feet, uh, his foot, because the spiritual power is, um, is uh, prior over uh, temporal power, and so he's going to run all of Europe. Well, uh, he runs it apparently for his own profit, because, a profit, uh, because Dante puts him in the circle of hell that has to do with fraud, the simonists, people who sell offices and take money for, um, for uh, personal profit. Um, the, another one, he, he gets an even lower section of hell, um, not the part where fraud is pub, uh, punished, which is a, a simple fraud, but what Dante thinks of as complex fraud, which is treachery. There's a difference in Dante's uh, Inferno between somebody who's just um, cheating you out of money, uh, someone who uh, betrays a relationship. So um, Count Ugolino's there. Count Ugolino betrayed his city of Pisa to the enemy, but uh, Pisa was saved by the action of the, of the bishop at the time who took Ugolino and uh, imprisoned him in a tower that's still there and nailed the door shut and imprisoned with him um, his, uh, his children. And so no food, no water. What essentially ends up happening is Ugolino tells his story in the circle of those who are traitors to kin and country is that uh, his children died one by one before him as he lost uh, his own strength. He consumed his own children, and then he died. And then the bishop, a man named Ruggiero, died. And so when Dante comes across him, um, Ugolino is eating the back of Ruggiero's head, and his face is covered in gore uh, because he can only focus on his hatred of his city, focus on the hatred of this, bi of this bishop who did a horrible thing. Um, but just as he consumed his children in life, he ends up consuming this bishop for all eternity, blaming pizza and blaming the bishop for all of his own failures. And then famously, when you get to the lowest pit of hell, 
It's a frozen lake, and there in the frozen lake is Satan, and he has fallen as far from heaven as he can get and still exist. And uh, the lake is uh, made partially by uh, Satan's tears, frozen by the beat of his wings, and there he's chewing on the three most famous traitors of all time, Brutus and Cassius, who killed Julius Caesar, and Judas himself. And so... Mortal sin's at the heart of all of this that freezes us into place. Mortal sin is, according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1856, um, mortal sin by attacking the vital principle within us, that is charity, necessitates a new initiative of God's mercy and a conversion of heart, which is normally accomplished within the setting of the sacrament of reconciliation. Mortal sin, according to paragraph 1861, is a radical possibility of human freedom, as in love itself. And then it concludes, however, although we can judge that an act is grave sin, and a mortal sin is grave sin, entered into intentionally and willfully with full knowledge, we can judge that a sin is grave. Nobody can judge mortal sin. So that the person that comes into the confessional and says, I committed three mortal sins last week. You know, something's wrong there in their understanding of what mortal sin is. It's better to say, I, I, I'm in the context of grave sin. And grave sin, as I always think the best metaphor is, it's when you're driving between Yuma and uh, Gila Bend, and it's July in the middle of the day, and the light comes on your dashboard. Better pay attention, because something bad may happen. That's the nature of grave sin, and it's called to deeper conversion. What's the problem of hell and Dante's Inferno? The problem is that hell makes no sense. Uh, it's a sin against reason. It's a misuse of passion. Uh, it's a misuse of other people. Uh, and all of these people deserve what they get. It's because hell is a place of justice. There is no mercy. So Dante and Virgil get out of hell by crawling turning around and crawling up Satan's leg, up through the hole he made when he plummeted through earth to the center of, um, of reality. And there they come across Mount Purgatory, which is made by all the earth displaced by Satan's fall. And they enter there, and I'd love to talk about Purgatory another day because it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful part of the, of the comedy. Um, but the difference between hell and purgatory is this. In hell is this chaos of bizarre sins that people do um, that you can understand the sin, but ultimately understand that they're irrational. Purgatory, going through the seven stages of uh, the purg purgation from pride to lust and all the stages in between, is about bringing order to human life because the gospel is about divine order. And we're going to turn to that now. <laughs> Do you remember the Sermon on the Plain in Luke's Gospel? And Jesus says, and it's Luke's version of the Sermon of the Mount that appears in, in Matthew. But he says, Blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Matthew, which is the most famous version, says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. But Jesus says, Blessed are the poor, the micros, the little one. And then a series of woes, because this goes back to the Old Testament. Moses pronouncing blessings and curses on those who either obey or uh, act outside the law of God. Woe to you rich, for you have had your reward. 
And it's that preaching of blessed are the poor and woe to the rich that St. James picks up in chapter 5, which is our second reading for this Sunday. And here's what it says. To the rich, you have stored up treasure for the last days. Behold, the wages you withheld from the workers who harvested your fields are crying aloud. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on earth in luxury and pleasure. You've fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. You've condemned, you've murdered the righteous one. He offers you no resistance. You know, I know there are people who through their own intelligence and hard work, have amassed fortunes. I also know in our parish, almost all of us are rich compared to almost anybody in the world, and certainly in the ancient world. And so this applies to all of us. But note what James is condemning. He's not condemning prosperity. He is condemning the abuse of other people, that the haves abuse the have-nots. And the way this comes down to us in the church is that we are called to solidarity of all people, uh, that the place of the church is the place where all are called to worship, that Jesus takes his place with all of our sinners, um, all of us sinners. And he says so, uh, this will come up again uh, in Mark chapter 10, when Jesus talks about um, that he came to serve, not to be served. But he's talking about how the rich, how the lords of the Gentiles, uh, the kings lorded over others, but Jesus then tells his disciples, but it should not be so among you. Rather, whoever wishes to be great among you will be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you will be the slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Take James's teaching about how it is that rich and poor are supposed to serve each other. Or even in marriage, Ephesians chapter 5, be subordinate to one another, husband and wife, out of reverence for Christ. Serve each other. To be greatest in the kingdom of heaven is to serve. And as we go through this whole passage about discipleship, remember, he says, come follow me. Be like little children. Be a servant. This is his teachings on discipleship. Because what happens in the Ganem Valley isn't about service. It's about abuse. It's about self-centeredness. Oh my gosh, to have no hope is to worry too much about yourself and not about the world we're passing on to our children. The valley of the shadow of death, Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. And so today's meditation on this valley of Gehenna, which starts in kind of a fashionable neighborhood in modern Jerusalem and descends in a place that's a place of conflict. Doesn't that sound a little bit like Dante's Inferno, how it is that you enter into this dark underworld? But what Dante says is reverse engineer it, climb up Satan's leg, and then you get to purgatory. And you find that sin provides a pathway out, a pathway to purgatory, a pathway to the right use of reason and the right use of virtue. Well, if you've liked this podcast, repost it, um, love it, uh, share it with your friends. This has been Oro Valley Catholic, Father John Arnold, and until next time, God bless you all.